Hello, welcome to the Radio Siam's 2023 podcast series. I'm your temporary host today, Matthew Velasco. I'm an assistant professor in anthropology and the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. And today I am delighted to welcome to our program, Professor Daryl Wilkinson. Daryl's coming uh, to us from Dartmouth College where he's an assistant professor of religion and anthropologist and archeologist by training Dr. Wilkinson's research focuses on indigenous religious traditions in the ancient Andes and the colonial North American Southwest. His research not only speaks to myriad issues and questions specific to these regions, but also makes significant contributions to comparative politics and the philosophy of religion. Today we'll be discussing two of his recent publications the first in Journal of Social Archaeology from 2019, Infrastructure and Inequality and Archaeology of the Inca Road through the Amaybamba Cloud Forests, and the second from, the Cambridge, from Cambridge Archaeological Journal, The Geoglyph as a Medium for Anarchist Ritual. So in our program today, I will start off our conversation with uh, Professor Wilkinson, and then we'll have a number of members of our SIAMS community posing questions on these readings as well as a talk he delivered yesterday in our in SIAMS on Inca metaphysics, uh, really pushing us to think uh, about Inca politics beyond uh, the uh, terms of political economy and think about ways in which um, engagement with the landscape was right, directly part and parcel of what constituted power uh, in, the, uh, in the empire. So um, Daryl, if I may, uh, I want to start off by asking you a bit about your, um, your journey to archaeology, right? how you found archaeology or how archaeology found you. I guess we could, we could say I'm asking for your origin story in the discipline. Oh, thank you very much uh, for that introduction, uh, Matt. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would say that I was one of those uh, precocious kids who decided I wanted to do a PhD in the Archaeology of Americas when I was about 14 or so. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, there, we have this um, tradition in Ireland in high school. High school kids go do a week of work experience in what they think might be their chosen career or profession. Um, and so I decided, you know, because I was interested in archaeology, um, I would uh, I would spend a week being an archaeologist to see if it was the right thing for me. Um, so I contacted um, uh, the archaeology lab at the Queen's University of Belfast, and I said, "Can I come and do something for a week as an archaeologist?" And they said, "Sure, we'll we'll have you process some uh, soil samples for flotation for a week." Um, and I thought it was a lot of fun and decided that, yeah, I think archaeology is the right choice. And so um, I, I did an undergrad um, BA in archaeology and anthropology and went on to PhD. I guess the, the big shift from age 14 was um, I decided I probably wanted to be a Mayanist at that point. But when I was an undergrad, my first-year advisor said, there's probably enough Mesoamericanists. I think you should do the Andes instead. And I said, well, you know what you're talking about, so okay, I'll be an Andeanist, and, and, and I decided to be an Andeanist, and, and that's, that's how I chose my senior thesis, which was on the Incas, and then ultimately my PhD uh, Columbia, which was uh, also on Inca archaeology. So yeah, the shift from Maya to, to Incas was the big uh, turning point, I think, that occurred in my plans between age 14 and wow. being an adult. So. 
That's that's in- incredible, right? Sometimes these origin stories don't 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 stem so deep in time, but uh, uh, it's it's incredible to hear how long your engagement and how thorough it has been with with the Inca and the Andes in general. Um, I want to turn now to Andrea Mori, who is a master's student in in SIAMS. Um, Andrea. Hi, I'm Andrea Mori. I'm a first year master's student here at Cornell um, in the SIAMS program. Uh, my main focus is the Andes, um, specifically adornment practices and human sacrifice with the Incas. Um, in your first article, I really enjoyed it as a case study um, for modern society as well. But I was wondering uh, what role does agency play in the qualitative experiences of infrastructure in the Indian world? And does Andean, or does agency shift along these phenomenological lines? Uh, thanks for the uh, question, Andrea. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what I was trying to explore in, in that particular article was how different individuals, people of different social status, particularly elites versus non-elites, uh, experiences um, and their ability to be agents and express agency was very profoundly shaped by their different relationships with infrastructure, right? So um, infrastructure is kind of the medium for a lot of uh, individual subjects' agency in a kind of state context or, or an imperial context, which is obviously what we're talking about with the Incas, right? So those who uh, travel on roads, right, that, that, that experience of movement, of knowing uh, the empire through moving across its transport infrastructural systems, um, that is a form of agency, an agency that, that gives one knowledge and experience and understanding of the world you live in. And that's very different from the um, kind of agency uh, that is expressed through the ability to clean, maintain, uh, engage in the upkeep and repair of roads, which is what the local populations are are doing, right? So there's very different um, mediation of agency that higher status and lower status individuals have in a context like the um, Amaybamba Valley uh, that is a product of their radically divergent experiences and interactions with infrastructure, right? So yeah, I guess... I guess I would say that if infrastructure mediates agency um, in a context of uh, an imperial state, then um, the different forms of mediation are what often separates high status from low status actors, right? The Inca aristocratic elites versus the um, the mitmakuna, the sort of forced um, uh, settled uh, forced settlers who were brought by the empire to populate this valley, maintain its infrastructure, to work in its coca fields, to do all the kind of uh, day-to-day labor, right? So that, that different relationship with infrastructure really mediated um, what kinds of agency were possible, um, and then ultimately through that, what kinds of um, subjects, what kinds of state subjects are are brought about through those those very material engagements with, with the physical world um, in which they're living. Fascinating. Thank you. Uh, We'll turn now to Marcos Ramos-Valdez, who is a PhD student in anthropology. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Daryl. My name is Marcos. I am a second-year PhD student in anthropology. I am an anthropological archaeologist in Mesoamerica and the Caribbean. I study how humans and plants interact with one another, both in the past and in the present, and see how we can engage through archaeology descendant communities. My question arises from 
an engagement with the class I'm taking with John Henderson regarding um, Andean history. And one of the talks about Huacas came up, the idea of uh, seques, um, which, it's, which when you were bringing out the, the map of the Tawantinsuyu and all the roads, I was thinking, how would seques play in this conception of personhood? Yeah, thank thank you for the question, Marcos. Um, yeah, absolutely. The the seque system. Um, uh, you, so this is the system of uh, radial lines um, around Cusco, emanating from the Coricancha, the sort of core uh, Inca temple in, in in the middle of Cusco, um, is is effectively a system made up of huacas, that is, of non-human persons, right? Um, and so, um, you know, there there are wakas that are outside of the seki system, but um, a large number, several hundred, are inside the seki system as well. Um, so, uh, a lot of these non-human persons that that I, w I was discussing in, in the talk yesterday um, were uh, would have been part of the seki system, right? They're integrated in that into that kind of space, but. The Zeki system, at least um, from my perspective, is a system for managing the relationships between different elite lineages, right? So what I focused on in the talk yesterday was how the Incas in general engage with Wakas and try and monopolize relationships with important, powerful non-human actors in the landscape. But of course, the Incas are not a unified entity. They have their internal uh, divisions, their internal politics. And that internal politics was primarily expressed with the different royal lineages or panacas, as they're referred to. Um, and each panaca, each royal lineage, was effectively responsible for uh, a different set of wakas within the tzeki system, with each royal lineage kind of managed and engaged with a different um, uh, group of the tzeki lines, right? Each with their wakas as nodal points along those lines. So the, the, the wakas in the tzeki system specifically are also about how power emerges through interactions with important non-humans in the landscape. But I would say the interesting and more specific thing about the Tzeki system is that it's less about distinguishing Incas from non-Incas, but about managing power relationships within royal Inca lineages, which, you know, as we know from ethno-historic sources, has lots of tensions, right? They often went to war with each other, killed each other for control over the, the state apparatus itself. So who controlled um, which wakas within the Zeki system um, is an expression of the balance of power, I would say, between the different royal lineages, right? And so, you know, we want to think of this, I think, as something that's dynamic and shifting over time, right? The, the, um, the Zeki lines are not all considered equal. There are ones which are higher status compared to others. So it kind of reflects the jostling for position between the royal lineages. Um, but at least at a certain level, it does suggest that right there has to be some kind of balance, some kind of distribution of waka relationships among the royal lineages so that everyone is included within this kind of really important group of wakas within the heartland region around Cusco, right? So I think, you know, we, we can think about non-humans in the Inca Empire in general and how they were central to politics. The Zeke system is that part of that picture which is specifically about reflecting and managing relationships, power relationships, political relationships between different elite lineages, right? I think that's the core of what the Zeki system represents. So it's it's a more particular version of a larger phenomenon, which I think we can identify throughout the entire empire, but it's very bound up with the politics 
among elites within the heartland context around Cusco um, and its immediate environ. Excellent. So we'll turn now to uh, Rafael Cruzgill. Hi, I'm Rafael. I'm a third year student in the anthropology program here, and I focus on Teotihuacan major relations. I do wish we had enough Mesoamericanists. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I will also ask about the first article. And you mentioned throughout the article how the Inca road system is not meant for the flow of goods or mercantilism. But I wonder about its role in the flow of people, specifically in the Mita system. Like, was it a part of the infrastructure of the labor flow that was so integral to the Inca Empire? Yeah, um, that's a very good question, Rafael. Um, absolutely. So um, the uh, well, if if I if I could, um, I guess, make a, a comparison with with Mesoamerica, the density of road networks and infrastructural networks in the Inca context is extraordinarily high. Um, this, this isn't something I talk about in the paper, but in other times I've sort of um, compared the number of, of kilometers of road per person with, say, the Roman Empire, with other uh, empires in other parts of the world. And the, and the Incas really invested a huge amount of um, uh, labor and time and resources in maintaining terrestrial transport networks. And in part, that is because the Andes really lacks navigable rivers, right? It's hard to move things over water, certainly in the highlands. Um, and so uh, roadways were really important to the management of uh, the flow of people and goods all over the empire, right? And, and often it's um, animals, right? So camelid trains are, are moving things in many cases because I guess at a very practical level, it's easier to get several hundred uh, yamas to move something rather than several hundred humans, right? So um, a lot of goods, a lot of people, a lot of animals are flowing throughout the system. And as you say, the, the mita, the labor tax that the Inca um, applied uh, to their subject populations throughout uh, most parts of the empire um, is very much bound up in the road system. So for example, um, in the um, uh, region I work, the Amaybamba Valley. Once you leave the Amaybamba Valley, uh, you get into the sort of slightly higher elevation where they're um, not growing crops so much. You get camelid corrals, which is where they would have put the coca onto the backs of the um, of the yamas who are taking it out of the valley. Um, then, as soon as you get to um, a slightly higher elevation, um, the road system goes up to storehouses. This is where you know you would have wanted to store a lot of that material, um, coca leaf. Uh, rots pretty quickly where it's grown, so you have to get it to higher elevation so it stabilizes. Um, and then those roads feed into the heartland region around Cusco, right? So all products of labor are being um, moved by humans and animals through this uh, really vast um, infrastructural system. And, you know, the, the traditional estimate of the extent of the road system that, that um, uh, John Hislop gave was 40,000 kilometers. I think we would now with especially the Capacnam project in Peru, push that to 80, 90,000 kilometers of roadway. It is, it's a vast um, enterprise. And by the standards of um, ancient empires, it really is um, probably the most dense ancient road network that exists uh, prior to the, the modern nation states uh, building roads. It's, it's, 
It's remarkable the extent to which it, it um, infrastructure um, united the Inca Empire together. And then also just to make um, another final comparative point with Mesoamerica, um, you know, cities were not that big in the ancient Andes, certainly nowhere near the scale of ancient Mesoamerican cities. Like we have nothing like Tikal or Teotihuacan or Tenochtitlan. We don't have those kind of vast urban sites. Uh, Cusco was nowhere near as big as the largest Mesoamerican cities. But infrastructurally, the Inca Empire was just this massive road and storage system network that really has no parallel, I think, um, until modern times. So, um, yeah, everything, everything flowed um, through the road network, um, labor products from the Mita, but also um, information. You have runners carrying uh, information often, uh, at least in some ethno-historic accounts, in quipu form, the knotted records. Um, uh, so goods, animals, people, information, uh, the road network was fundamental to the entire system in many ways. So, yeah. Turning now to Anna Whittemore. She is a PhD student in anthropology as well. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a PhD candidate in the anthropology department, and my research focuses on migration and forced resettlement in the Inca Empire um, with a methodological focus in bioarchaeology. And this question builds on Raphael's question about movement through the road system. Um, so I was wondering about the potential meaning specifically of having Meet Makuna maintain the road, because presumably, even though, as you point out, their main role, their main interaction with the road was maintaining it, they would have used it on official business at least once when they were forcibly transported to Amaybamba by the state. So in addition to the... Um, I guess, divine association that you point out um, with maintenance, the association that the road has with Viracocha. I am wondering, and I'm trying not to ask a leading question, but do you think that this um, forcing Mitmokuna or, yeah, do you think that this um, employment of Mitmokuna to maintain the road was something of a power play, continually making them maintain an object that played a key role in their oppression or something like that? Or, you know, let me know if I'm completely off base. Uh, thanks, Anna. That's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so the, um, uh, just to give a little bit of, of, of the, the context before I, I try and answer your question directly. So the Amaybamba Valley, um, had a uh, fairly extensive uh, late intermediate period that is pre-Inca occupation, um, and it seems like uh, that was entirely removed um, uh, from the valley by the Incas, and they replaced them, uh, as you say, with uh, just over a thousand uh, mitmakuna, that is um, uh, forcibly resettled colonists, uh, um, from Chachapoyas, according to the available uh, historical sources. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, almost a thousand kilometers uh, to be removed from your homeland. Um, that very removal itself is a power play, right? Um, and so absolutely, I agree that sort of that, that journey itself would have been profoundly dislocating. And again, we want to think about this um, uh, from the perspective of the importance of non-human persons, right? That is to be dislocated, to be separated from the non-humans that would have been resident within your home landscape and be placed somewhere else. Um, interestingly, we do get um, at least one structure that appears um, to have Chachapoyas influenced architecture in the Amaybamba surrounding a rock outcrop. Um, so it would seem like that in itself was an attempt by the uh, Chachapoyas um, 
uh, Mitmakuna to transfer that to a new landscape. Uh, but again, that's a landscape that is an Inca landscape, right? It is completely transformed with roads and bridges and storehouses and Inca royal sites, right? So that um, kind of dislocation from one's home landscape is is also a process of being reinserted and reintegrated into a new kind of landscape, also with non-human persons, but very much on the Inca's terms, right? So I think absolutely um, that is at every level from the, the movement, the dislocation, the, the journey there on the roads, the process of having to um, clean and maintain the roads, um, the fact that you really can't leave after you get there, right, Mitmakuna have to stay in, stay in place. Um, I think all that, all those relations are relations of power, right? So the, the Incas uh, were, were nothing if not hierarchical, right? They um, saw all relations as fundamentally hierarchical in some sense, right? So I think that um, all those aspects of daily life that the Mitmakuna in Amebamba would have experienced would have been uh, stratified in that way, right? It would have demarcated differences between them um, and uh, the non-Mitmakuna individuals, right? And, and again, Amaybamba has an Inca royal palace in it, right? They would have clearly seen the full range of life experiences um, right up until like the most elite Incas, um, the aristocratic Incas who at least occasionally must have visited the Amaybamba because there is a palatial um, site to accommodate them. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I would I would absolutely agree with the term power play. I think that's that's a very nice way to capture what what is going on with those kinds of material relationships that are being instantiated through the road system and everything else that went with it. This has been a fascinating discussion so far. I want to zoom out a little bit right now and maybe bring in uh, the geoglyph as a medium for anarchist ritual article. So let me give a little preface to my question. So. What I find most exciting about your writing is both its specificity in the sense that you are taking Inca and Nazca metaphysics seriously and on their own terms, but also your you know, almost effortless ability to move between his, uh, historical and political specificity and engage in broader comparative analysis. I find that really, you know, really rare in anthropology today generally. And so I want to I want to invite you to reflect a little bit on your research process and maybe even your writing process and how you arrive at um, how the analysis specifically in the uh, Cambridge Archaeological Journal piece uh, coalesced. Right. This this is a bit abstract, right? But one can imagine that you're engaged in literature on on anarchism and and uh, uh, other forms of, of you know, uh, political debate and engagement, and it reframes your knowledge, you know, your existing knowledge on geoglyphs? Or are you beginning with the, you know, as you said in your talk yesterday, the empirical anomaly and, and looking out to other sources in anthropology to help, uh, and, and political theory and so on, to help make sense of, uh, of a problem, right? A problem with with the archaeological materials. This is not to say that it's one or the other; that it, you know, everything is either deductive or everything is inductive. But I would love to hear how you um, how you mediate between the broad scale and and the more intimate scale in your at every stage, right? In in conceptualizing this work, in, in writing it, and so on. Oh, well, thank thanks for the the comment and the and the question, Matt. Um, yeah, well, I guess maybe. Um one way to answer that is that um, I, I've 
I'm in a rather unusual uh, disciplinary position and have actually been for most of my, my career up to this point. I'm an archaeologist um, who works in the pre-colonial Andes, but I actually am employed in a religion department, which is not a, a typical location for archaeologists uh, to end up. Um, but even before that, before you know, I became um, an assistant professor, um, I, I was also uh, doing postdocs that were uh, religion-themed or, or um, humanities-themed. So throughout uh, most of my career, I, I've actually been the only archaeologist in the room uh, trying to make what I do sound interesting to non-archaeologists, which is not, not always a given. Um, uh, you know, uh, lots of, um, of our fellow uh, scholars in other disciplines don't necessarily know that much about the archaeological uh, uh, past or the archaeological record or what archaeologists do, right? Um, uh, often if you talk to, you know, academics in other fields, their first question is like, what exactly do you do, like, as research? It's, it's, it's almost kind of exotic to the non-archaeologist. Um, so I've kind of always, um, in part, I mean, I think it's, it's something that interests me as, as, a, as, a, as a research um, framework, but in part I've, I've often, um, by institutional uh, design or context, been formulating my work um, for broader audiences. Why? What would make this part of the ancient Andean archaeological past interesting to a geographer who works on 19th century America or um, an historian who works on 20th century Germany or something like that? You know, how, do, how do you engage people um, working in radically different fields, different time periods, different disciplines with archaeological research and make it seem relevant to them? So I think uh, you know, so my interest in anarchism in that piece um, is because I think that if you're interested in anarchism, as a lot of political scientists and historians are these days, um, there's a huge amount of variability that is not captured by the modern context, right? There's so much going on in the ancient uh, past that um, only archaeological research could really, um, uh, you know, make, make uh, present or visible from the perspective of, of, of scholarship. So um, I think... Um, at that at la that level, part of it um, is that um, I've always been interested in making archaeology more legible to um, audiences of humanists or social scientists who may not necessarily be that familiar with it or engage with it that much otherwise. Um, I think in terms of maybe the more uh, specific question of the um, uh, the empirical anomaly, I, I do often, you know, uh, I get a little obsessed with empirical anomalies, right? You know, why why make an image so big that you can't properly see it? I mean, I, that those kind of questions don't have obvious answers, and and they do get me a little bit um, uh, excessively fascinated. Like I, I can't I can't stop thinking about them sometimes, um, and I feel like um, in part that's that is often what drives me as as an Andeanist. I see all kinds of things. Um, that I don't have obvious explanations for, and I'm, I'm motivated to try and explore them um, in more detail, right? And, and I think this particularly uh, comes up with the Incas a lot, right? So um, why would the Incas not be interested in geoglyphs, right? They clearly were familiar with the concept. They conquered the Nazca region. They, mm -hmm. they knew they existed. For some reason, they must have thought, no, not for us, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of gets me thinking, well, is there something about geoglyphs that make them not conducive to the imperial project of the Incas, but maybe were more... Um, interesting to the to the Nazca, right? So that you know got me on a train of thinking about well, maybe there's a political aspect, and 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 that sort of takes me into anarchist theory as a way of sort of making sense of that. But yeah, I mean, I I think um, 
sitting and puzzling over yeah. over the archaeological record is 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 a thing I like to do as an archaeologist. Yeah. No, I think your your work kind of trains our eyes to see things a little differently, and and I don't mean that. Uh, this may come across weird, but it's sometimes you ask you, you've asked questions that, in retrospect, seem so obvious and yet are rarely asked or considered. And I think there's just a kind of a an interpretive or you know, interpretive clarity in, in the way you, you approach the archeological record. And um, th so thank you for sharing your work. Thank you, that's, that's nice of you to say. But we're not done here at Radio Siam, so we're going to continue around the table to uh, have some more uh, questions about the work that uh, Professor Daryl Wilkinson has shared with us. So I'm gonna return now to Andrea. Um, I was struck by in your geoglyph article the concept of counterbalancing in the Andean world. Um, and so I was thinking uh, about Justicia 413, which was an, I suppose, an Inca policy that said that only local natives of a particular region could carry ritual offerings through that region. And I was thinking of that in terms of your first article on infrastructure. Um, so my question is, how does labor in the ritual sense of wakas interact with the autonomy of Mitmakuna and or regional authorities? Yeah, um, well, so uh, I think obviously um, one of the sort of key aspects of, of Mitmakuna is that they um, are theoretically supposed to be self-sufficient, right, within the context of their labor activities, right? They are not supposed to be dependent on... Um, Outside flows of um, uh, you know goods or, or food or, or material that the, the empires um, uh, providing. Um, so um, I do think that there is, in some way, a degree where um, at least thinking of the Amaybamba context and, and this sort of well uh, cycles back to my previous point about what appears to be a uh, waka, a rock outcrop that is enclosed within Chachapoya-style uh, architecture in the Amaybamba, that there was probably, in some ways, more autonomy available um, for those kinds of ritual engagements with wakas or non-humans um, available to um, Mitmakuna, um, because they are, again, at least in theory, more autonomous with respect to um, the state um, provision of goods and, and, and activities, right? This is not true of all laboring groups in the Inca Empire. Some were much more bound up with, um, uh, you know, very specialized forms of labor that they uh, performed for the state, and therefore they provide they were provided food from outside, you know, sources by by um, the empire. So I, I I would, at least as a working hypothesis, agree that. Um, there may be more autonomy um, for Mitmakuna groups with regards to their engagement with non-human persons and the kind of ritual forms of um, interaction and ritual labor with non-human persons because of the relative, uh, very relative um, lack of direct oversight of Mitmakuna relative to some other um, laboring groups in the empire. So yeah, I think you could make that argument at least in some cases. Returning now to Marcos. This conversation has been wonderful, so thank you. Um, my question is probably going back to a more generic um, approach. I just wanted to know more about your own methodological approach to how do you come to personhood? Do you have an aha moment? So do, you some, do you observe something in the field? Do you talk to somebody? Um, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I would say there aren't 
there, there are a few moments, yes, I guess, where, where um, things become a little clearer than they were before. Um, I remember um, one, I was uh, at one point, this is maybe a while ago now, seven, eight, nine years, I can't quite remember. I was just wandering around Tipon, which is an Inca royal estate near, near Cusco, uh, by myself, I just you know had a free day, and I thought I was going to walk through uh, the landscape for a while. And um, I, uh, one of my arguments, and this is something I talked about yesterday, is that um, uh, glaciated peaks were considered to be aristocratic, very powerful non-persons, and the royal estate system is a way of managing relationships with them by managing their relationships with their bodies. Um, and particularly terracing as a way of disciplining the body of the non-human, the mountain, the, 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 the uh, non-human person. And, uh, you know, I remember um, just, I, you know, Tipon goes quite high, so I, I, would f I was following the water canal um, at Tipon, and as I noticed, it was kind of just leading right up to the, the glaciated part of the, of the, the peak above, above that royal estate. Um, and thinking about how the water would then flow from the glaciated peak down and it would then run through the terraces and the, so the, 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 the royal estates are kind of managing the fluid, the bodily fluid I think of the, of the, the mountain as it runs through the, the estate system and, um, and, and so sometimes just I think as an archaeologist you just have to spend a lot of time in the landscape looking at things and thinking right, you need, you need to just pause and just spend time engaging with the materiality of it. Obviously, that's that's not the only thing. You also need to survey and excavate and do much more structured research. But I think maybe particularly for formulating questions, like for, at the starting point, like how do you decide what to excavate or what to survey or what I mean, what doesn't any kind of more structured research? Um, you know, the the, the the foundation is always, well, what's interesting to think about. What what should we be interested in devoting um, time to? And I think that early stage requires um, a certain amount of just thinking and imagining possibilities, but that process has helped enormously by being there and just spending time in the landscape. And, and often that can um, generate new ideas and perspectives that you wouldn't have had if you were just like trying to dig or, you know, because excavation or whatever, it's, there's a timeline <laughs> and there's every day costs a lot of money and you have to get a certain amount done and, and your mind isn't as free to wander in the same way or, or just explore thoughts or just look at things and think about them um, because, you know, you're, you have a lot to do and, and there's a lot of people there and you're, you're trying to manage a whole system. Um, and obviously that's necessary, but, but how, do you, how do you sort of take moments to think and, and take stock and, and ask what would, be the, what would be the interesting questions to explore through more structured research? And I've definitely had those moments that have often come from just walking through the landscape and thinking and, and trying to figure out, you know, um, uh, what, what would be the next thing that, to, to think about and, and ask about? And, and I definitely find, yeah, there are these moments that, that you do you do get that, that change your perspective and, and help you figure out what you want to do next. Rafael, do you have another question? I do, thank you. Yeah, this, regarding the geoglyphs as anarchist practice, I, this is kind of a speculative question and I had never considered them in that way, but then I was also struck by their prevalence even after state societies had taken over. So geoglyphs are very clearly like powerful, but they're also inoffensive in a sense in that 
the ink. I didn't feel the need to deface them, erase them. I don't quite know how to phrase this. I'm thinking about, for example, the gigantic cave art in Baja California, which as soon as the Jesuits arrived, they painted crosses all over. And then yet you've got the just beyond scale geoglyphs that were allowed to remain. Like how can they be so powerful and yet not threatening to state structures? I wonder what your thoughts might be on that. I know this is a very far out question. <laughs> no, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, well, uh, you know, one strategy is um, violent, you know, I guess we would say iconoclastic destruction. Um, but um, another strategy is indifference. Um, and the Incas were indifferent to a lot of things, uh, rather conspicuously so, not just geoglyphs, which clearly they, as you're absolutely right, they, they seem to just ignore, um, but also, um, you know, uh, Cusco itself is, is only about uh, 25 kilometers from Piquillacta, which was a huge Wari uh, structure, right? And the Wari, right, are the Inca's predecessors, like the, the empire that governed much of what is now Peru before the Inca. And so they have this big Wari installation right next to Cusco, and the Incas just left it. They didn't build anything. They, there are some Inca sites near it, but um, they didn't sort of build any structures within it. They didn't try and demolish it. They just sort of left it as a ruin, right? Um, and you know, um, I keep always contrasting with Mesoamerica, but think of you know the the engagements that that the Aztecs had with with Teotihuacan, right? They they are very interested in these places. They they do things in them, but the Incas didn't do things in Piquillacta, their their imperial predecessor. So. The Incas certainly practice quite a lot of, I would say, um, uh, uh, conspicuous indifference to lots, lots of things in the landscape, not just geoglyphs. Um, uh, and it's it's harder to think of things that they actively destroyed with regards to their predecessors. But there are multiple things, not just not just um, geoglyphs, but whole sites that they seem to have been very kind of. Um, how would you put it, uh, you know, unengaged with in a, in a kind of performative way almost. Mm -hmm. um, although I, with regards to the, the Nazca line specifically, not with the Incas, but a lot of the late intermediate period occupation in the Nazca region does actually efface the geoglyphs. There are some LIP sites that are built on top of them and therefore disrupt and destroy them. So um, the Incas didn't um, violently damage geoglyphs, but some of the um, late intermediate period Nazca uh, people apparently did, and, and this is the time when the people in that region have stopped producing geoglyphs. So there I wonder if there was a kind of rejection almost of the geoglyph among the local Nazca populations. Mm -hmm. But absolutely you're right, with, with the Incas there is no program of, of effacement or destruction. And, and in that sense they're, they're not like Catholic missionaries in, in the Latin America who clearly did destroy a lot of rock art, for example. I mean there's a huge amount of um, crosses uh, placed on uh, petroglyphs in various uh, contexts in Latin America, which were clearly the missionaries saying this needs to be Christianized or, or you know, uh, effaced in some way. So, yeah, it's interesting when, when indifference versus when actual violence is the strategy of engaging with something that you are, are uh, not with. I, I don't have a good answer to why those strategies are employed, but clearly there's more than one way of dealing with the past that you're not entirely on board with, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's fa- just fascinating. I've never really thought. <laughs> you should just write an article called On Inca Indifference. Uh, um, yeah, I usually present the Inca to students, right, or focus often on the kind of more intensive aspects of social engineering, right, especially with Meet Makuna, which you were writing about as well. But um, no, that's a very illuminating contrast. Uh, we'll turn now to uh, Anna Whitmore again. Hi, Anna again. So sort of combining the perspective of the Rhodes article with the geoglyphs, uh, the material of the geoglyphs article, what about the, I'm wondering about the sort of sensory or embodied differences between those who produced versus those who viewed them, if a distinction existed at all. Um, So is there any evidence uh, that there was a distinction or a disparity between people who mostly would have viewed them, say, from the ground while while building the geoglyphs versus, say, restricted zones in those high elevation points where they were best viewed um, that you point out at one point? Um, or, or do you think that producing and maintaining these geoglyphs was um, also part of this anarchist impulse, that it was, it was something that most people in society participated in, although you do point out that it wasn't necessarily an egalitarian society. It was it was more so that um, it had these points of, of heterarchy and, and balance between different social groups. Uh, thanks, Anna, for the, the question. Yeah, um, I, I guess my general perspective on the Nazca specifically would be that um, most activities were in some sense communal, right? There isn't a lot of um, uh, exclusion per se, uh, but they are structured in, in different ways with regards to the geoglyphs versus other kinds of activities. So the, the real contrast um, with the geoglyphs is what happens at Kawachi, which is the sort of main early Nazca center where, you know, you get these, uh, you know, pyramidal platforms, um, but there's a whole bunch of them right there. They seem to be, uh, it seems important that lots of different social groups, maybe lineages or kin groups of some kind, each have their own platform or space at, at Kawachi, right? So, so you know, this is both centralizing in that, well, why do they all have to be at Kawachi, but also to some extent decentralizing because it's not just one platform, it's lots of different smaller platforms, right? A real contrast with, say, the Moche, who are much more about the one place rather than the lots of places, right? So a different understanding of, of what a center is, right? So when I talk about that, um, Kawachi is kind of hierarchical in that sense. It, it is both centralized and organized, but also different groups are given their own individual spaces within it. The difference with the geoglyphs, I, I think, is really that um, it's there's no kind of, of center anywhere, right? Or any centers are fleeting, right? There, there's not one space on the geoglyph landscape that is the center. There's lots of centers that seem to rise and fall um, over time, right? There's, there's, you know, there's, no, there's no permanent um, interest in one place. And so that's why I refer to that as um, more uh, anarchic or, or more sort of uh, lacking in a kind of clear focus on one point where everyone has to come together or where there's kind of um, uh, sort of interest in, in um, singularities, right, or things like that. So, um, I think that from you know, in the kind of model that I'm I'm, I'm arguing for with with Nazca, um, they wanted to balance different kinds of uh, organizations of ritual, right. The whole point was not, 
you know, we, we often think of anarchism um, as something that seeks the revolutionary overthrow of the state, which, you know, a lot of anarchists do. They, they want anarchism to do the way everything is done. I think in, in certain um, ancient contexts, anarchism is seen as a counterbalance to something else that should also exist. Right? You need anarchical organization of certain activities, but you also need more centralized, more hierarchical organization of certain activities. Right. So the interesting question is, what should be controlled or organized in an anarchic way? What should be controlled or organized in a heterarchical way? What should be controlled and uh, organized in a hierarchical way? Some Andean societies clearly were much more interested in expanding hierarchical relationships. The Incas, uh, you know, perhaps above all, but the Moche were much more interested in hierarchy, I think, than the Nazca. Um, and so it's the interesting question for me is often, well, how does this balance get played out and how does it change over time? Right? It's always within an historical context. So. I think um, for the Nazca, it's less about exclusion of one group or another in some kind of class relationship, right? That some, some people get a better view or some people don't. It's more about different kinds of activities are more hierarchically organized and they, incur, they occur in different places, right? Um, and other kinds of activities are less hierarchically or more anarchically organized and they occur in different places. And there's a kind of material basis to that as well, right? The, the Pampa de Nazca is somewhere where it's very hard to surveil what's going on, right? You have hundreds of square kilometers. So even if you wanted to control those activities, it would be rather difficult to do. But the activities that are occurring at a site like Kawachi, well, then there's much more possibility for regulating because it's much more clear what's happening. It's more observable. Everyone knows what's going on, right? So I think part of the, part of the um, story, I guess, with the Nazca is that they, the landscape itself and its affordances, its material affordances, was they were leaning into the, the political possibilities that the different aspects of the landscape can, can provide. Thank you. So I think uh, I might wrap up uh, our podcast here with one last question. Um, what's next? What are, you, what are you working on? Uh, what will the next year or two bring uh, for you with regard to, to research? I'm interested to hear. Uh, yeah, well, so um, uh, next year I'm, I'm on a, a sabbatical, which I'm very uh, excited about. But um, you know, I'm very much uh, on, on the process of finishing my book manuscript, which is hopefully going to be finished um, uh, by this uh, fall. Okay, uh, so that's, that's kind of monopolizing all my attention uh, uh, right now in terms of writing and research. Um, and, and that, that is going to, um, so the, the title of the book project is An Archaeology of Metaphysics. Um, and it's going to talk about um, the Inca um, and non-human personhood in the Inca Empire um, and how that's central to Inca statecraft and Inca, the Inca world in general. Um, and that's kind of one half of the book's argument. The other half of the book's argument, and that is, this is the, the chapters that I'm currently sort of um, finishing writing up uh, uh, at the moment and I'll be doing so over the next few months, is how uh, that picture is radically different if we go to the time period before the Incas, right? Mm -hmm. this, this world of a state which is about governing wakas and non-human bodies and, and mountains being disciplined and um, this very sort of... Um, uh, distinctly Inca uh, context in which non-humans are integrated into statecraft. I, I don't actually think that that's how the Andean state worked um, uh, prior to, say, 1000 um, CE, right? I don't think that's a good way to think about the Moche state or even Wari or Tiwanaku, right? So mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm definitely of the view that um, 
we should minimize the uh, comparisons between Wario and Inca. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, yes, they did have road networks, but there are many, many other differences that, that um, we need to emphasize more. So part of the story is not just about how the Incas did work, but how the Incas were radically innovative in the Andean context. What they did was unprecedented in many ways and does not resemble the uh, techniques of statecraft um, uh, that precede them, um, especially before the year 1000. So um, that project is all about, um, for me, seeing Andean pre-colonial histories as filled with discontinuities of changes mm -hmm. and, and divergences from previous traditions. Um, that's, that's not always how uh, the Andean past is understood. Um, and so I, I'm very much interested in, in writing about um, radical changes that occur before the colonial era. And so that's kind of one of the, the key points of the book project, and, and that is going to be uh, monopolizing my attention, I think, for, for certainly the next uh, year or more. I can sympathize, and I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, to read the manuscript when it's out. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your work in, in your process as a researcher with us today and a little bit about yourself. It's always really interesting to see the, to get a glimpse of the person behind, behind the work, behind the byline. Uh, and thank you also to our participants as, uh, in the SIAMS community. This has been a really uh, productive and enlivening uh, conversation. So I thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Uh, this has been a wonderful experience and thank you everyone for your questions. This has been a, it's been a fascinating conversation.